Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Destination Dynasty. As always, I am your gracious host, Scott Connor, at Charles Chill FFB on Twitter. In last week's episode, we talked about wide receivers. We talked about what were the cutoffs, some roster construction at receiver, best ball versus lineup. Uh, This is going to be another data dump show, probably be about 30 to 40 minutes today. I wanted just to talk about running backs. Uh, And then I had another topic that I want to cover at the end of the show. It's just talking about a new way to play Dynasty from a psychological standpoint. And part of that is a lot more information is available. I've talked about this on many, many prior shows. But there's not a lack of information anymore. You are not beating your league mates by having more information than they do. Pretty much everybody you play with in a non-really casual home league is tapped in somewhere, whether it's DD, whether it's many, many other resources on the internet. In fact, a lot of people are probably tapped into three, four, five different sources at once, if not multiples, if not dozens. So really beating them with information isn't an advantage anymore. You have to beat them with strategy. You have to beat them with psychology. You're playing your league mates, more than you're actually playing the dynasty game. Sitting there saying, I can pick better players. I know who is going to score more points. That's not an edge anymore. A lot of those approaches, the margins are very, very slim to the point where I don't want to risk everything in a given league on a bet that I have a 50, 55% chance of winning. That's not a good bet. But what I want to do is be able to play my league mates from a psychology perspective. And I'm going to talk about at the end of the show, how you can identify players that might be able to appeal to that. There's obviously many, many different ways where you can look at somebody and say, I'm playing the player. I'm not playing the game. But from an actual picking fantasy players standpoint, how can you exploit that? How can you exploit the groupthink and use it as leverage for your dynasty strategy? So for this week, we're going to talk running backs. Before we do that, uh, make sure to check out everything over at Destination Debbie. It is a perfect time to check that out. Uh, Ray's doing his off-season film series, which has been really, really helpful uh, to kind of get an idea of what running backs are good and what running backs aren't. Eric and I talked about this on America's Game the other day. Check that out. Uh, we did a four-round mock draft, 14 teams, point per carry, heavy tight end premium, super flex, It was pretty cool, but one thing we mentioned quite a few times on there was understanding, okay, we know we're going to be drafting a lot of running backs. This is the perfect class to draft a ton of running backs, but which ones do we want? In that format specifically, a point per carry league, a point per first down league, which ones do we want and which ones might we not want? How do we prioritize? How do we break ties when you're in the middle of the third round and you go, there's 15 different players I could choose from? 
there's seven different running backs I can pick. Obviously, we don't have draft capital or landing spots yet. But even so, even when you have those things and you're picking in the middle of the second and you go, yeah, I'm collecting running backs with all of my second and third round picks. What order do you take them? What range do you take them? So I think it's important to kind of have an idea. Okay, this guy got draft capital. This guy has this physical profile, but is he a good running back? And that's something that you're going to be able to get with that film series. Ray's going over a different running back every single week. So check that out, patreon.com slash allgas. And then make sure to subscribe to that newsletter that we have, which is allgas.beehive.com backslash subscribe. Enter your email and you get something every single week from all the Destination Devi creators. So for today's show, we're going to talk some running back data. And, you know, we throw around a lot, especially on the roster construction series. I threw around a lot the idea of we know when to play running backs on a weekly basis, right? You can just roster any running back on a 53-man roster, and you should have an idea of when they're going to get into your lineup. Now, this is going to be specific to a lineup league. Uh, Talked about this a little bit on last week's show. Obviously, there are running backs that literally come from nowhere, and then all of a sudden, They have a 20-point week, and that could be because there's two injuries ahead of them on the depth chart. That could be because something happens where maybe they go from the number three running back to the number two, and then the number one running back gets hurt in a game. Like That stuff happens constantly, but you would have never known it from a standpoint of you couldn't see it coming from year to year to week to week. You may have an idea of when to play those players before the game starts, but it doesn't matter if a player gives you 14 zeros in a lineup league because if they can give you two or three non-zeros where you might be able to start them that's a win best ball you don't want to do that roster spots are precious you want to have as many players week to week that potentially could fire which means the threshold of where your running backs are going to be cut off is obviously going to be higher in a best ball league you can't afford to roster the number three running back on teams most of the time in a lineup league who cares if you have 30 roster spots the back eight to 10 roster spots on your team can be running backs that are zeros most weeks. And you're just waiting. You're just waiting for that one week where you go, hey, I can start this guy. So you can see how the theory is a little bit different depending on the type of format that you're playing in. But I wanted to go back and just kind of challenge this and put some numbers uh, to the idea, just so everyone kind of has an idea of how to project it going forward. I think we're at a really fascinating time right now with dynasty teams because we have tons of running backs. I talked about this on the offseason prep series. Uh, I believe it was 15 of the top 58 or so running backs in dynasty are unrestricted free agents. And then there were a ton of others that were in that range. Let's just call it top 60 where their value is impacted by what happens with those 15 that are free agents. So probably half the running back landscape, if not more right now is impacted simply by free agent movement. Now, some of that is a fallacy because you're going to have players that are gaining value because a running back leaves their backfield, but the odds are there's going to be another running back from that same free agent crop that joins their backfield. So it isn't like everybody that leaves a backfield gains value because, well, they're hitting free agency, right? They could get a better job. If they were in a committee before, now they're hitting free agency. Wow, they're going to sign somewhere and be a starter. And vice versa, just because a player is in a backfield that has another player leave it doesn't mean there isn't one of those other free agents that re-signs. And that doesn't even think of the running backs that just re-sign with their teams, that nobody's expected it. You know, nobody expects Damian Harris to re-sign with the Patriots. Nobody expects Devin Singletary to re-sign with the Bills. And there's probably a good chance 
more so that they're not going to than that they do, because obviously there's 32 teams and they can only go back to one team. So the odds are not in the favor. But I also talked about it on America's game, too. There's going to be probably a depressed market for a lot of these guys. There might be three, four running backs that get, quote unquote, like starter money. Everybody else is probably just fighting for scraps. They're fighting for jobs. So there's going to be this weird dynamic where some of these veterans go, you know what? I'm probably better off taking that one year, $2.5 million contract right now because somebody is saying, hey, we want you as our backup versus you're saying, I'm going to hold out for more money. A bunch of other guys that might be equal or below me on the totem pole sign. And all of a sudden there's not really any jobs. And more importantly, there's not much money available. I think teams are probably going to be budgeting for this is what we're going to pay our running back room outside of having a clear starter that we can sign. And after that, I'm sorry, there's just not an opening. We're going to bring in somebody in the draft, but we're not really interested in bringing in three running backs making $2 million. So there's going to be limited spots for some of these guys to sign. So you're going to see some players that we go, wow, that guy had some dynasty value a year ago or two years ago, and literally he can't find a job. And you're wondering how. Then there's going to be other players that we go, wow, I didn't expect that guy to be the ninth highest paid running back in free agency. But wow, you know, Samaj P. Ryan just got the sixth best contract of running backs in free agency. And I didn't see that coming. Nobody did because he's never been valued that way. So there's going to be this weird dynamic during this next couple months where the movement's going to be all over the place. And that doesn't even account for the draft. It doesn't even account for the fact uh, that our mock draft the other day, we drafted 23 running backs. And we've had Shane Hallam on America's Game. I've talked about this, but looking at some of the rookies this year, there there's going to be a lot of running backs that are drafted in draftable range by the NFL, which is going to push them into draftable range for dynasty drafts. Round two, round three, round four of dynasty drafts, because there's going to be a lot of running backs that go round two, round three, round four, round five, maybe even round six of the NFL draft. 15 of them, maybe up to 20 of them. And all of those guys are probably going to be worthy of dynasty draft picks. If not, they're going to be guys you pick up off waivers because they have a shot to make a roster, right? You have a sixth round running back. Maybe they don't go in your four round rookie draft, but you're going to pick them up off waivers. That's exactly the type of bet you want to make. So the point is you're going to have a lot of rookie running backs that are also on people's rosters this year. So there's just a lot of volatility at the position, more than I can ever remember. So I wanted to go through and just look at historically some of the data that correlates with that? And how do we form our strategy? And how do we value a lot of these guys from a roster construction standpoint? Go back and listen to the roster construction series that I did talking about the running back position and kind of how to treat it, where the thresholds are, where the cutoffs are. I mentioned on another show the other day, currently right now in my dynasty portfolio. So this spans with what is currently 48 dynasty teams and counting and growing. And there are some best ball teams in here. So this isn't a specific exact science. Uh, but including rookies this year, I have moved over some of the rookies that I have in like Debbie leagues and whatnot to my current NFL player portfolio. But right now, across my leagues, which again is 48 leagues currently, I am rostering 107 running backs. So think about that, 107 different running backs. Now, there are a couple in there that I don't even have any shares of, I'm sure. But that's 107 others. And there's not many rookies in there. There might be six or seven rookies that I have pulled from random Devi leagues. So if you just think about that, that's like 100 NFL running backs, veteran running backs that have been in the league at least a year that I'm rostering. And you would see some of these names and you go, yeah, these guys are likely to be nothing. You know, a ton of a guy like Raheem Blackshear, who knows if he even ends up making a roster. 
you know, a guy like Craig Reynolds, who I've held on to in a ton of leagues, some veterans, Damian Williams, Mike Davis, like those guys are probably on their last leg, but you know what? I'm going to roster them until everything says that I shouldn't roster them anymore. So it's literally any running back that I think could make a team or is currently on a team or is a rookie that may be drafted or may have a chance to make a team. I mean, just think about it. Any running back on a 53, and we're so far removed from the next season, it's really easy to speculate on all of those guys. So if you just think about that, I wanted to go back and look at some of the data, and I pulled data from the last five years just to kind of see where the distribution of all of this makes sense. Now, a real quick point just to establish before we get into this exercise. So I talk a lot about on the roster construction series, the median average, right? What is replacement value for running back to? And it's easier to think about this from the scope of you're in a league, call it 12 teams, start 10, PPR. You have to start two running backs. That's key. When you don't have to start two running backs, the dynamics of these numbers change. When you get into half PPR, it changes just a little bit in favor of adding more running backs because the flexes are a little bit higher rate at the running back position. Uh, and then you look at leagues where it's point per carry, and it's just exaggerated even more. We talked about that on the America's Game Show the other day, where we did a point per carry mock draft. When it's point per carry, it's exaggerated even higher. But this is just PPR. So assuming you have to start two in a PPR league, here's the baseline. Here's the replacement value. I took the last five years worth of numbers and just looked at what is a replacement value week for a running back? What do you have to get? from your two running back spots just to hit replacement value. And usually we're looking at the RB2, what's replacement value at RB2. And over the last five years, it's been right around 14.1 points per game. It actually trended way down in 2022. That was around 13.3. Uh, and it peaked in 2021 and 2020, 14.45 and 14.53. Uh, and it's kind of gone up and down since, but 14.1 over the last five years. What that means is if I am playing like a hero RB approach or even a zero RB approach to at least just keep up with the Joneses, I'm trying to hit around 14.1 points per game in each one of my running back spots. So you envision this perfect roster where you have high upside, you have high replacement positional value at every other position. So you have an elite tight end, you have two elite quarterbacks, you have enough of those receivers where you're just trying to hit some spike weeks. Maybe you can start five receivers. You're throwing in five receivers that you think are going to have a baseline floor worth of volume or a baseline floor worth of market share. And you're just trying to hit a couple spike weeks there. But at running back, especially if you've kind of punted running back or gone hero RB or zero RB, you're shooting for around 14.1 points per game. So I use that as the baseline. And I went back in the last five years and I looked at, okay, how many different games have had that number hit on a weekly basis? How many different games over the last five years, fantasy games, so I cut off week 18 of the last two years and week 17 of the three years prior, just to account for the fantasy season. You could have probably included those, but I just didn't because uh, we don't count those for fantasy. So just from a fantasy football perspective, how many times over the last five years has that number, 14 points per game, I used 14 because it's a little bit of an easier cutoff, how many times have 14 or more points per game been scored in a week over the last five years? And the number was pretty staggering. 1,494 games at the running back position have hit this number since the 2018 season. So over the last five years, 1,494 games have hit at least 14 or more points 
in a given week or in a given game. Now, how many of those per year? And that's pretty easy. You divide that by five, uh, 298.8. And then how many is that per week? And I did prorate this based on the 16 and the 17 fantasy weeks uh, during these seasons. Uh, So the numbers, if you do them in your head, they're going to be a little bit different just because of that. Uh, But you're talking 298.8 per year and then 18.22 games per week hit this number. And that's kind of right where you expect it would be. If you're talking about the median average at the RB2 spot and you're starting 12 across the league in two different spots, that's 24, you'd expect it to be right around 18. So it was actually 18.22 per week. So in theory, there are 18.22 games per week where running backs are hitting at least that 14 points per game. Now, what I also wanted to look at is how many different players are making up that sample size, because I think that's one of the keys, right, is it's not that difficult to imagine that there are 18 games a week where you're hitting 14 points per game. Now, if you think about that, if you just do some quick math, if that's what you're shooting for, right? And there are 18 of them. Let's just round it down to 18 just for argument's sake. But if there are 18 of them happening per week and everybody has to start two running backs, it usually means that there are three teams or at least 25% of the starts at running back that are falling below that range. So if you just think about it that way, there are at least 25% of the starts across the league that are falling below that replacement value range. Now, do you want to be there? Not necessarily. But I think the other thing to think about is how do you roster construct around that? If you're going completely zero RB and you're trying to hit two of these games per week, assuming you're not flexing any running backs, I think that's another thing to think about here. But assuming you're not flexing any running backs, if you have no anchor running backs, you have to essentially guess right amongst the stable of your backs. Let's say you're rostering out of 30 roster spots, you're carrying 13 different running backs you have to not only guess right on two of them that hit this 14-point-per-game mark, but you might have to do it out of a range of five or six different running backs that you have to choose from. And that is where the argument with the Hero RB comes in. Obviously, you have to pay more for a Hero RB, but if you can hit on one of these running backs that gives you, let's say, 19, 20 points per game, let's call it 20 points per game, all of a sudden, yes, the price that you paid for that running back is probably much higher than what it would cost to get five of the lower end running backs. But now if you can get 20 points per game from your RB1, the threshold of what you have to hit just to hit baseline, just to beat, you know, the 25% that are falling below that level is a measly eight points per game. And think about if you end up hitting on a guy that just gives you 14 points per game in that RB2 spot, you're now plus six points against the field, simply because you have that anchor running back. And that's how the distribution of points has typically worked over the years, which is why the Hero RB strategy is so popular. It's why it's more popular even in like redraft best ball leagues, because you only have one shot. You are taking a shot. You are slimming your margins down to go, okay, I have to hit on one guy that maintains this 20 points per game. And we know 20 points per game for a running back, A, is volatile, but B, In best ball, where you can't make any trades, you can't make any substitutions or waiver pickups, you're really shooting for a narrow window. You're shooting for a narrow range of outcomes, especially if you're playing multiple, multiple leagues, 
which is why that, that popular strategy has come about the last couple of years in best ball, especially if the guy gets hurt and he doesn't hit that mark or he just doesn't hit that mark, the team is probably sunk if you roster constructed that way. But that's kind of how we can think about Dynasty. But the good thing about Dynasty is we have ways to bail ourselves out if it doesn't work. So it actually makes it an even more viable strategy because you go, okay, I'm going to build around Saquon Barkley as my hero running back. But if he gets hurt or if he's not performing or something happens where I can't use him, I have ways out of that. You know, it's still a trade chip. I can still go, okay, I need to replace this clear hero running back. That's not a hero this year. Najee Harris last year was not a hero, but I have time to replace him. Now, if I don't replace him, that's fine. Maybe I don't want to pour more resources into the position, but the idea is you can fix that on the fly in a dynasty league. So it's just interesting to establish those baselines. So if we use the 14 points per game as the baseline, I wanted to look at the distribution of how many different running backs have done that over the span of five years. Now, this is a fluid number because obviously I picked an arbitrary sample size of five years. There's going to be players that have come into the league since then that make up this sample size. And then there's going to be players that have left football since then that might have done it in 2018 or 2019, and they're no longer even in the league. And then you have some guys that you saw the names. I mean, when I went through these names, there's probably a dozen players that show up 20, 25 times on this list. And you know those names, you know, it's the Zeke Elliott's, it's the Joe Mixon's, it's the Alvin Kamara's, it's the Dalvin Cook's. I mean, they show up a ton because they've been there since 2018 and they're still going. So it's kind of interesting to look at that distribution. But what I wanted to look at is the unique number of running backs that are doing this. And I think that's important. That is why this strategy is so viable because the numbers back it up. Now, it's easier said than done to build your team this way, right? It's easy to look back and go, well, here's what the distribution was in 2020 and in 2021 and in 2022. Here's what the distribution has been over the scope of five years. That's in hindsight, looking at the data after the fact, it's not looking at warp. It's not looking at start rate for any of that. So it's just assuming, okay, this guy scored 14 points per game. He could have been in a lineup. Then you see some of the names and you go, yeah, nobody probably had that guy in a lineup. You know, that was literally a fluke. The guy had three touches. You know, that was definitely a fluke of how that came about. So I think that's also important to acknowledge, but at least having these numbers at your discretion gives you an idea of why the strategy can work and why it's viable. So over the past five years, I looked at how many different running backs, so different names have hit those 1,494 games above 14 points. And the total is actually a little lower than I thought, but then you think about the logic behind that, and that's because a good bulk of those games are by the same 10, 15, 20 guys that I mentioned, right? Like there are guys in there that have spanned all five years. There's some that have spanned four of those five years, but there's a lot of players that continually show up week to week, year to year. So over the last five years, 162 different running backs, so different players have hit those numbers in at least one week over the past five years. Now, that's not that many, but then you start thinking about how many of those are turnover from year to year, and it really isn't that surprising. So that's 32.4 different players per year that are hitting that number on average. Now, again, there's some crossover in there, but what's a little staggering here is even with that, even with the crossover, and from year to year, it's not like from 2022 to 2023, Half of the top 24 running backs are going to be different. 
In fact, probably more than half of them, or at least are going to be projected to be the same as they were last year. But that's still, every single week, on average, there has been two different running backs that have hit 14 points per game. Two different ones over the course of the five years. So you think about that. Every week, there's going to be two different guys that have never done it before, that have never had a 14-point week, that are going to show up on this sample size. Now, the bulk of those can be maybe a rookie that's never done it. This is their first year. So they're going to jump in, boom, they're there. You know, the opposite could have been 2018. You might have had a veteran or two that got stuck in 2018, and then they didn't play again. So it's going to account for that. But that's still staggering to think about. Every week of the season, you're going to have two different running backs, on average, show up on this list that come from nowhere, that may never do it again. One week. This is the one week they have a chance to play, and they do it. Now, obviously, if they're good enough, they probably have a high likelihood of showing up again. But sometimes they don't. There were some names on there, and I go, wow, that guy only did it one time over five years? I mean, he's been in the league for three years. How does he show only show up one time? Well, it's because sometimes you get one opportunity, you do it, then you end up just not being that good. Maybe you're on a depth chart, but you never end up firing again. You never have a 14-point-per-game week again. So that was interesting to me. Then looking at the distribution from year to year, how many different running backs from year to year have done it from 2018 to 2022? And I think this distribution will highlight something uh, that maybe we didn't see coming, uh, but maybe we should correct for for 2023. So here it is. In 2018, we had 75 different running backs in that season post at least one week of 14 points per game. So 75, keep that in mind. 2019, it drastically reduced 67 of them. So 67 different running backs in 2019 posted at least 14 points per game in a given week. Now, what does that tell you right there? And I'm not saying this was the narrative because I definitely didn't have this data in front of me in 2020. But going into 2020, that was the running back craze year, right? The 2020 rookie draft. If you remember how running backs were valued in 2020, there was this weird dynamic to where everyone kind of knew they needed to get out of the veterans from that 2017 class. Man, we're not sure if these guys are going to get contract extensions. There's this great crop of rookie running backs coming in, five running backs going in the top eight picks of drafts. Oh my gosh, this is the new era. This is another 2017 class. Watch out. But guess what? Most of the 2017 guys got contract extensions, and they were good. They remained good. They still remain good. But a lot of the 2020 backs were also good. They also ended up onto this list early, right away. Now, a couple of them have gotten injured and whatnot, but the point is you had this weird dynamic where people overvalued the running backs because in 2019, we kind of had an era of like where the bell cow running backs showed up a little bit more, right? Only 67 different running backs ended up hitting 14 points per game that season. And then the next year was this weird dynamic where there were some values with the 2017 class because they were all hitting free agency. They all ended up getting contract extensions, which locked into their value. People bought back in on the Joe Mixons, Alvin Kamara's, Aaron Jones, Dalvin Cooks. Everyone was still in on those guys because they were still good. But then you had this really, really intriguing rookie class of running backs coming in as well. So that was kind of like the height of the running back values a couple years ago. And then everyone expected, wow, you know, it's back to a running back game. You know, running backs, this is the best the running back landscape has ever been. I remember even saying that back in 2020. And then what happened? 
the actual 2020 season, 77 different running backs ended up posting 14 points per game. So the running back started to kind of fall back a little bit. You had a couple guys that ended up getting hurt. You had a couple veterans that ended up getting hurt that year. People dealt with those injuries. So we started to fade running back just a little bit. Going into 2021, it was starting to go that way. I was talking about it at that point already where I'm going, man, after 2020, I'm going zero RB. I'm going hero RB. That's the way to play it. I mean, anybody that listened to my old high stakes redraft podcast, Chasing the Helmet, back in 2020, we were all about heavy RB, anchor RB, double anchor RB, triple anchor RB, right? Like we went slim at running back, but man, we were going three running backs in the first six or seven rounds. Like we don't want to miss out on hoarding these bell cows after the 2019 season. Boom, 2020, it busted. So in 2021, the narrative started to change. Everyone started to go towards zero RB or hero RB, or at least I did. And then it now seems like that's the super popular strategy, but this is the data behind it. 2021, you won. You smashed if you did this. Why is that? In 2021, 82 different running backs posted at least 14 points per game in a week. 82. That's the most that we've seen uh, in a long time. I went back actually to like 2014. That's the most we've ever seen. 82 different running backs in 2021 posted 14 points per game. And so what did that create? That created an absolute craze going into 2022. Zero RB, hero RB, fade running back, devalue running back. And to an extent, it was the right call. But how much of it was just following what had happened the past two years, right? So after 2019, that number went from 67 to 77 to 82. So here we are sitting here thinking running backs are dead. The bell cow is dead. Every backfield is a committee. A third of the backfields are three-way committees. All I need to do is have enough bodies to get by. I'm good. I'm never paying for a running back again. I got caught up in that. And then last year, the numbers, if you at least look at this data, it reverted kind of back towards 2019. Now, a couple nuances are different. At the high end, it never got any better. But in the middle range, like I talked about on the roster construction series, at the middle range, the numbers actually started to get more compact. There were less injuries. There were more guys that ended up hitting you know, this average number, this 14 point per game number, and we're a little bit more stable. So the distribution became a lot more crunched together. And last year there were only 70. So we went from 67 to 77 to 82. Everyone got on board with the 82. I'm like, oh my gosh, running backs, we cannot trust a bell cow running back. They're either going to get hurt or they're going to cede too much work to other players. Boom. We're right back to 70. So what does that mean? What can we learn from that? If you just take this small sample size, You look back at 2019, it was only 67. We valued running backs highly at that point, right? And then we had this really good class of rookies in 2020 coming in. We valued those guys highly, but the market spoke differently. So I guess this comes down to how do you want to use this data? Do we trend back towards what it was in 2020 or 2021 in 2023? And do we continue to embrace the fact that, you know what, running backs are actually valued at an all-time low? There is a really good running back class that is coming in. So how do we play that? You know, what bet do you want to make? I'm not sure. You know, I'm not exactly sure what direction I want to go, but I do know the major difference. And one of the reasons why you would never lean into this type of strategy in the past 
meaning heavy running back. Let me just bet that it's not going to be the variance that we expect. There's not going to be the number of injuries that we expect. The reason you would go against that and the reason why we get win against it in 2020 was the price. 2023, the prices are lower. Running backs are cheaper. You can buy running backs way more cheaply than what you could have in 2020. You know, you don't have to pay multiple firsts to even get the elite veteran running backs, let alone the veteran running backs that people don't see as being that good. You know, the James Connors, the Joe Mixons, those types. You don't have to pay a ton for those guys. Now, you may not want them, but I think the idea is you're not buying a guy like that for their asset value. The asset value has been done for for years. You're buying it for, okay, I'm paying the 203 for James Conner. The bet is basically he becomes one of those guys that doesn't seed a lot of other games to other players. And that's where it might be worth it. Whereas three years ago, the James Conner of three years ago might have been in the form of a guy you had to pay a mid first for. Or a guy that you had to pay a draft pick where you're going, wow, there's no way I'm giving you a 107 for this player when I can draft a stud like J.K. Dobbins. There's just no way. So that's something we have to reconcile this year as well with so many running backs that are going to be worthy of like late first, early to mid second round picks. How do you want to play it? So I just thought this was an interesting dynamic to go through. Uh, I don't think it ever trends back towards the bell cow running backs. I mean, we've talked about this so much, especially with this offseason being so volatile with how many running backs are hitting free agency and how many running backs are coming into the NFL via the draft. I still think teams are looking more towards They want two guys, right? They want two guys that can split this workload. Now, hopefully, in most backfields, both of those players are capable of hitting the 14 points per game, right? If you just take two teams or two players per team and there's 32 teams, right there, that's 64. And that doesn't even account for injuries. Now, there's going to be some guys that are bell cows. I know we've talked about this in the Discord that there's probably, you know, six to 10 quote-unquote bell cows in the league where you can probably project them for 20-plus touches a game. And then if you have a guy that's getting 20-plus touches, how many other players in their backfield can be relevant? That's probably dependent on the efficiency of the offense, how many plays they run, how frequently they run the ball in neutral situations. Like Some of those things are going to matter. But just on average, if you take 32 teams and then two running backs per team, that's 64. Now, how do you get to the number that's in the 80s or the 70s? Obviously, there's injuries. Obviously, there's situations where a team might have three good running backs. And throughout the season, they end up kind of cycling through. Because there's teams that don't even have anything close to a bell cow. Hey, we have three guys, but we don't really have anybody that's a top 20 running back. So we're going to kind of just move it around until we find stuff that's working from a week-to-week standpoint. So something to think about. I think it was cool to go through this distribution and look at these numbers. I think the way to play it right now is... You can lean into the volatility at the running back position between now and the NFL draft. Uh, Once that happens, I think things are going to stabilize a lot more and you're either going to be left holding the bag on some players or you're going to look back and you go, wow, I got this player for cheap. I got three bodies for a third round pick. Eric and I have talked about that, literally picking up three bodies that people have cast aside for a third round pick. I've gotten two guys like Damian Harris and Miles Sanders. I got two of them for a second. You may look back and go, wow, I literally ended up with two of these guys that could score 14 points per game or more, or I got two guys that are just bodies. Why the hell did I ever pay a second? So I think there's going to be a lot of boomer bust. That makes me lean into the fact that if you can make those leverage deals, and I define a leverage deal by usually getting multiple pieces that have range of outcomes of matching the one piece that you're giving up, 
If I can get those types of deals, I'm okay adding these running backs, especially on teams where I'm looking to put my roster construction, you know, kind of in the optimal range. Half my roster spots are running backs. Like these are the deals I'm trying to make and I'm okay kind of embracing the market volatility. I'm okay that across my 40 some leagues, if I buy a couple running backs that I'm buying at a good price, but you know what? Maybe I end up whiffing. Maybe I buy a Devin Singletary share and he's literally a guy that doesn't get a job until August and he's fighting for a roster spot. That's a far cry from where he was a year ago where he was a starter. And there's going to be situations like that where players go from, wow, they were a top 30 running back in value to, wow, they can't even find a job. That's how volatile this market could be. And then vice versa. There might be guys you don't value at all. And then all of a sudden they're the one that signs for 6 million a year and a team goes, yeah, that's our starter. You know, that could be a guy like Deontay Foreman. And you go, wow, that came out of nowhere. But there's a lot of range of outcomes that can happen in the next couple months. So you either buy into it, you take some gambles, but I think all the gambles I want to take are leverage gambles. What I don't want to do is go pay the 204 for Miles Sanders. Why? Why? What's the point of doing a one-for-one? At best, you're just guessing. At best, you're going, you know what? I prefer the player. I prefer a player because I know Miles Sanders is good. I know he's going to thread the needle and be a starter in free agency. Well, what if he isn't? You know, at best, that's like a 55-45 or 60-40 bet. So I don't want to make those one for one. So to answer a lot of questions that I get, would you give up the 106 for this running back? Would you give up the 204 for this running back? No, no. Very rarely am I going to make a one for one deal where I'm giving a pick or I'm giving a more stable asset like a receiver or a quarterback for a running back that's in that volatile range where they're going to be a free agent. Two for one? Sure. Give me two shots. Three for one? Sure. Now, obviously, the three-for-ones are probably going to happen in ranges where it's like I'm getting three bodies, you know, three back-end roster spots for a third because somebody has to cut down to 30 and they have 37 players rostered and they have 12 players they could potentially cut. That's a team that might give you a three-for-one. I'll do a three-for-one like that because think about it. What do I have to gain if I get three bodies for a third? All I need is probably one spot start out of any of those three and it paid off what I paid. If I get multiple spot starts or I get multiple players to get spot starts, boom, that's a smash deal. So I want to buy some running backs. I want to build my stables up, especially on these teams where, you know, I need to fill some roster spots, but they got to be leverage deals. They got to be two for ones. They got to be three for ones and no one for ones, no coin flip bets, no paying picks for your running back unless it's just an obvious value smash. And you know when it's an obvious value smash. Someone offers you Derrick Henry for the 202. Okay, I'll take that. You know, someone offers me Dalvin Cook for the 204. Okay, I'll take that. But you're probably not getting those deals. You're probably being asked for mid first for those types of players, and it just makes no sense to do those types of deals right now. So hopefully this was helpful. Uh, more to come. I have a lot more data that I pulled at running backs that I want to talk about uh, in the next couple weeks, next couple months, uh, kind of dissect a little bit more what those replacement level running backs look like from a profile standpoint, from a touch standpoint from an opportunity standpoint. I think that'll be cool to dive in to try to start dissecting which names we might be able to project to do that and which ones we should probably cast aside. But that's for a future show. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the psychology of dynasty players and how to play that. We'll finish out the show with that and I will be back in 30 seconds.
Welcome back, everybody. So for part two of this episode, I want to talk a little bit about psychology and dynasty. Uh, this is a major topic that has come up a lot in the Destination Devi Discord. Again, patreon.com slash allgas. Uh, but we've talked about the psychology of playing your opponents in dynasty. And this came about, like I touched on in the beginning part of the episode, uh, information really is an advantage anymore. You know, when I first started playing Dynasty 10 years ago now, information was king. If you could just find legitimate, valid information, you were ahead of a lot of others in your league. You know, a lot of my Dynasty leagues literally just started as like home leagues where people decided, hey, let's play a Dynasty. Let's keep your players. But there really wasn't any Dynasty evaluation, at least not a lot of data that was available out there where people actually were talking about like valuing things longer term or valuing things from a team building standpoint where you're not just looking at one single season. Now that has evolved over the years. There's a ton more information out there. Even five years ago, there wasn't nearly as much information as there is now. Now you just follow on Twitter you know, the right number of people. I mean, my Twitter following uh, in terms of how many that I follow, I kind of just follow anybody that I think could give me some sort of useful information. But my timeline is just littered constantly with info. Now, some of it's probably bad. Some of it's great. You don't always get the best sample size because there's so much of it. But there's just so much content out there that if you're playing Dynasty right now, you are following content creators. You're probably following multiple content creators. You're listening to podcasts. You're reading articles. You're watching YouTube. You're following Twitter, TikTok, wherever there might be content, people are following it. So they're not flying blind. Very, very, very few Dynasty players are going, you know what? I watch football. I'm evaluating Dynasty that way. They have a pulse on what's going on and how other people are valuing things. And that wasn't the case five years ago. Definitely wasn't the case 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was like, you find people, they have no clue what they're doing. And it's not because they have no clue in terms of what to do. There just isn't a template of how to do things. So they're just basically watching football and going, yeah, I like that player. I like this player. They're not having any sort of scope or context as to how to value things. And that's different now. You don't have that. Pretty much everybody goes, okay, I understand the value of a rookie pick. I understand the volatility of running backs. I understand the value of elite quarterbacks. I understand the value of like the tight end positional advantage. Like those things are not a mystery. So just saying you know those things isn't really an advantage. Saying you know what prospects are good and which ones aren't isn't really an advantage. Because that leads into like the market perception of players. And at some point, Everyone kind of knows, well, this guy's really young. This guy had a lot of college production. This guy doesn't have a great profile. You know, draft capital, really good for this guy. Not so good for this guy. Or at least, hey, this guy got drafted high in the NFL draft, but maybe he's not that good. Like that becomes groupthink pretty quickly. So there isn't an edge necessarily in just saying, I know who's better and I know who's not. I know this guy's a great value. I know this guy isn't. I know where these players are supposed to go based on tiers or based on ADP and you don't. None of that stuff is an advantage anymore. The advantage and what I think I want to start looking into more is the psychology of playing your opponents, figuring out who is in your league, figuring out how they play, figuring out, you know, where are they getting their information, even if it's from multiple sources, are there some slight leans that you can find with how they're playing? Are there any tells that they will give away? And sometimes we don't have the time to figure all of this out. Uh, I've talked about it before when you send a trade offer to somebody, if they just give you some information in the response, that's information that you're gathering towards how they're going to play. 
interacting with them in a chat, seeing things they say, seeing things they might give away where there might be a bias in something that they're going to do in the future. You know, how somebody uses their draft picks, when they look to trade their draft picks, how they approach different positions. You know, what are they trying to do when they usually try to make trades? Are they always trying to tear down? Are they always trying to gain value? Are they chasing super high upside? Are they chasing spike weeks? You know, what what can you figure out about a player in your league? And I think that also goes into the topic I wanted to cover tonight, which is the groupthink or the market perception on players. Uh, this came up this week where we were talking about two different quarterbacks, Will Levis, who's coming up in the 2023 draft, and then Tua Tagovailoa. And those two players, and really, how do you dissect their value? You know, you can look at, like, keep trade cut. You'll see Tua Tagovailoa is a top 12 quarterback. You can look at a lot of mock draft rankings or a lot of mock draft results or even just creators rankings. And they may not like Will Levis, but a lot of the arguments might be, hey, he's going to be potentially the first quarterback off the board in the NFL draft. Like He's going to be a top 10 draft pick in the NFL draft, and he should go in X range. But when you really think about it, if you just follow like the profile track, and I've, I've given this example a lot, and I still haven't figured out the best way to quantify it, but if you just pull up, use like Player Profiler, for instance, or DLF, they have like a spider chart that shows you kind of the makeup of a player's value, like where their ADP is gone, you know, what their profile looks like. It's like a snapshot of what the player's profile or their value profile looks like. And imagine you had an attribute that was just like the hype score or the popularity score, or the perception score. And you just had one of those for each player. And so even if you have three equivalent players, they would each also have their own perception score, or hype score, or preference score, whatever you want to call it. But it's almost something that just drives how much in demand that certain player will be in your given league. And that can change over time. There are players that have a really, really high number in this category, but then after they fail a couple times, after there's some disappointment a couple times, it goes way down. And then how does it recover? Can it recover? Because you have to think about this. In your league, your 12-team league, there is a very small economy of players that are going to be where you can go for deals. Buys, sells, trades, it's only your league of 12 players. It's not the dynasty community as a whole. It's not the aggregate of data that you might get from like keep trade cut. It's not even like certain tiers or rankings or whatever that you'll find like DLF ADP. At least there's a pretty large sample size that goes into that. You don't have that in your individual league. If you're in a couple leagues, you can go to your league and go, well, hey, keep trade cut says this. DLF ADP says this. Adiko's ADP says this. And your league goes, that's fine, but that's not how we see it. And everybody in your league doesn't see it that way. And then who cares? Who cares what all those outside sources say? Because your individual league, it's different. And you can't change it. You can say, well, I'm going to embrace the fact that, you know, consensus is higher than my league is. So let me go this way. But then you also have to think about, you know, where can you go the other way? You know, where is there an advantage now that I've read the league and I kind of understand uh, where they might be a little more biased than others? This is something we do on our Dynasty Trades in 5 roster reviews. Uh, that's something we do every single week. We review about 9 to 12 teams. Uh, we record a custom video for everybody. So if you're interested in that, uh, please message at TradesIn5 on Twitter. We can hook you up with one of those. But one of the questions we ask, we have everybody that pays for it and fills out the uh, Google Sheet. 
they essentially are asked a ton of questions about their league. And that's one of the questions. League biases. Tell us about league biases. That's a big deal. If you've already identified league biases in your league, then embrace that. That's going to change your strategy because we can sit here and say, well, in a random league where everything else is equal, do this, do that, roster construct this way, value picks like this. But when you say your league bias is nobody values draft picks, okay, where do you go now? What type of strategy are you going to take in that league versus one where everybody is looking to tank for draft picks? It's totally different. Doesn't matter what keep trade cuts value is at that point because your league has said something different. So back to these examples of Will Levis and Tua Tagovailoa. Let's start with Will Levis, right? So for all offseason, I've been saying, you know what? I'm going to just take quarterbacks with all top six picks. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about if you have picks 102 through 106 or so, like I view four quarterbacks going in that range. But the more that I think about it, the more that we've kind of talked this through the Discord, I haven't really found anybody that likes Will Levis. The only people that like Will Levis are basically the people that go, you know what, quarterback is worth X in my league. Quarterback is worth kind of X across the board in dynasty leagues. So I'm not going to pass up on a quarterback that gets really high draft capital and does have some traits that can translate to high fantasy production. I'm not going to pass that up in the top six of my rookie draft. Until then, you realize, well, what are you actually drafting? There's such bias against Will Levis from most people. It's not just, okay, some people. It's almost everybody. I'd say it's probably like 99% of people that you'll find. The only way they like him is if they can get him as value in a rookie draft. There's hardly anybody going, I have to have that asset. That's the asset that's going to accrue in value and I'm going to be able to resell. So I had to kind of sit back and go, you know what? If my feet are put to the fire, and I have to use that 106 rookie pick. Let's say there's three quarterbacks that are already gone by that point. If I have to use that 106 rookie pick, do I want to draft a guy like Will Levis there? And I can sit here and go, you know what? I'll draft him at 106. I'll hold him. And if he's good, then it's going to be worth my 106. But when you think about that and you think about the current market at wide receiver and how crazy everybody is at wide receiver and how there could be a running back like a Zach Charbonnet that ends up going in the early second round profiles as a bell cow. People are going to like that. If that's available, you kind of think about that and you go, man, if I draft Will Levis, it feels like one bad game from Will Levis in preseason and you won't even be able to get back out for a first, right? Cause there's probably already two thirds of your league that go, yeah, this guy's a dog. I don't want him at all. He could be there at the 109. I won't take him. There are some very popular podcasts out there that have talked about this. They don't care if Will Levis goes 101 in the NFL draft. They are not picking him in the first round. Now, I wouldn't come out and ever say that, but they've kind of given up their hand right there by saying, I'm not taking the guy. So even if they pick ahead of you, they're just not going to draft him. And there are people out there following that advice. Like Will Levis is off their board. So if they pick between you and... And let's say they pick at the 107 and you pick at the 109. They're not taking him, even if he falls to the 107. Now, they may look to trade or move around. But again, the point is there's probably a lot of people that are just going, I don't want the guy. And that's going to create this demand in your league where he has very, very few outs to ever give you the value that you're drafting him at. Because think about on the other end, what would it take for somebody to go, I'll give you two firsts for Will Levis? probably more than what you want to wait for before you dump him for two first. What you're probably hoping for is, man, if that's Anthony Richardson and he goes out and just has a 70 yard run in the preseason, boom, 
I can easily get back what I paid for him, if not double. Will Levis probably has to have like two good fantasy seasons before people go, yeah, maybe he's pretty good. Maybe I was wrong about him. But I'm thinking about that going, I don't want to draft myself into that problem. It's a one way out. I have one out with Will Levis if I draft him. And that is he ends up good. And when I'm drafting players, that's the biggest thing that bothers me about when people cite quote unquote hit rates. Hit rates are more than just if a player has a top 24 season. Hit rates are, do I have a live asset that has potential value gain throughout the first year or two of their career, where at any point I can either get A, production, or B, I can flip it for something else that gives me even more upside, gives me even more flexibility. That's what I want if I'm drafting an asset. And the more I start to think about that, we almost want to go into rookie drafts thinking about who do people like and who do people not like. There's going to be an element of this, I think, with the running backs this year. You know, I see a lot of people still talking about Sean Tucker, Zach Evans, Tank Bigsby. The reality is there's probably 10 to 12 running backs that are going to be in the exact same tier as those guys, but who do you think is going to go higher? And it's going to be some of the names that people already like. So in a way, you almost break the tie for those guys. If I have to draft a guy, let me draft Sean Tucker. That's the type of guy that if he goes out and has a massive preseason game or he smashes in week one, guess what? That's the type of player people are going to be more in on than the random Chase Brown, who no one had really heard of before 2021 or 2022. And they're really, they're the same type of player. It's just, okay, which one do I think has more upside just from a flip value standpoint, just from a liquidity standpoint? Forget about if they're going to be a good player. And this is even more applicable to guys you take later in rookie drafts. Early in rookie drafts, you're pretty much expecting production from all of them. But later in rookie drafts, you're going, really what I should be focusing on is which guy... If there's this outcome, could I literally sell for double or triple what I paid? Forget about what the production is because I'm drafting them in a range where I'm not really expecting any production to begin with. So the main focus of why I take a player should literally be what their future stock value can be. And that's my conundrum with Will Levis. I think he's going to be a good value, but if I'm dissecting his true trajectory as an asset, it feels very one-sided. It feels like I draft him. I hope he's good. And I hope if he's good after a year, maybe a year and a half or two years, that the community may then value him at what I paid for him in this year's rookie draft, right? Maybe I can get a mid first for him after 15 games of solid NFL play. And that may not even happen. You know, the opposite could happen if he goes out, starts and has three terrible games, he's done. It's over. Can't even get a second. He's at Zach Wilson level. And I don't want that perception on downside if I'm taking a guy in the mid first. So my stance now on Will Levis is, you know what? I'm going to bet I have him in a couple of Debbie leagues already. I'm fine having those shares for what they are, but I'm going to bet that, you know what? There's a much better chance that even if he isn't bad, but he goes out and just doesn't look great early, there's going to be an opportunity for me to get him much cheaper than where he's being kind of mocked in these drafts, 106, 107, 108. Like I'm going to be able to get him much cheaper across my portfolio. Now, obviously this is easier to do when you have a large number of leagues, but I'm sitting here going, let's say I want to get 10% Will Levis and that's out of 40 leagues. So I need four shares, right? Why would I spend 106, 107, 108 to get my four shares when I think there's a 90% chance that there could be a window where I can get them for less than a first entirely? midway through this season. And I think with that type of asset, knowing the market perception on him, that's definitely the case. So it just 
takes him off my board. And I'm not saying I won't take any shares if he's there 110, 111, because you think about it, if the group in your league behaves this way, there's going to become a trigger point where you go, okay, he's still there at the 112. Maybe I'll take a share there. But I'm not excited to take him relative to what his NFL draft capital is going to be simply because I think right now he's a one-way asset and the time I have to wait for that one outcome meaning he just plays well, is actually too long that I'm comfortable waiting when I'm holding a first-round asset like this. And then Tua. Tua Tagovailoa is another one. It just came out a couple days ago. He's still in the concussion protocol. Now, if you read the context of that article, it still talks about how he's basically voluntarily in the concussion protocol still because there's some things he needs to do to pass. It isn't like he's having ongoing symptoms and his memory is gone. Sounds worse than what it is, right? We don't know a lot about the concussion protocol. It's not super transparent. It's individual for each player. So we see that headline and we go, oh shit, like he still can't even remember where he was. You know, he can't remember the plays. No way he can play again. Like that's how the masses are reading it. But I think there's enough smoke there with Tua now that he's trending in the veteran direction of Will Levis. He is an asset that yes, is valued as a top 12 quarterback, but it also feels like there really is only one out for Tua going forward. And it's that he plays well. He scores fantasy points. You know, you haven't heard a word, and there's a whole lot that probably goes into this. You haven't heard a word about Tua getting a contract extension. You've already heard it about Jalen Hurts. You've already heard it about Joe Burrow. You've heard it about Justin Herbert. All of those guys are probably going to get massive extensions this offseason. It's been mum on Tua. In fact, you've heard a lot more about, well, who are the Dolphins going to be looking at for quarterback? Are they going to be sniffing around Aaron Rodgers, Derek Carr, Tom Brady? You hear more about that than you ever hear about Tua's ready for a super max contract. Now, part of that might be Miami isn't sure. Part of that might be Tua's not sure. Part of that might be both sides are just keeping quiet because this isn't the type of issue they want to put out in the public. I mean, Miami has an incentive to really not let their plan slip on what they're going to do with Tua. Because they're probably sitting here going like, man, well, we don't want to sit here and go, yeah, we're not interested in signing this guy long term because he has these head injuries. Because he's probably sitting there going, well, you know what? Part of the reason I have the head injuries is because the Miami doctors sent me out there when I probably shouldn't have gone out there. So there might be a little of that posturing from both sides where it just isn't a subject they want to broach publicly right now with where Tua stands in the concussion protocol. But he also feels like one of those guys where if he doesn't get discussed in that light like these other guys, it's going to be, I don't really want him. He's capped out. You know, he's going to be seen as just a year-to-year type of quarterback asset. It'll probably take, I know people have compared him to Brandon Cooks. It will take multiple seasons of no concussions and high-end play for Tua before the masses go locked in top 10 quarterback again. He may never get back there. So like the Will Levis argument, if I'm drafting two at QB 11, QB 12, I think he's QB 11 in keep trade cut. If I'm drafting him there in a startup, I feel like I have only one out. I have one out and that is that he plays again and he plays good. And that's it. Because I'm not going to be able to go, wow, guys, look, look, Tua just put up three top 12 weeks in the first five weeks of 2023. Let me go try to trade him for top eight quarterback value. Like, I think that's gone. I don't think the market will ever get back there. And vice versa, you draft to a quarterback 12, he goes out and gets a concussion in week four, the floor has fallen out. It's over. 
he's going to retire. He can never play again. He loses 20% value that he can never get back, even if he gets over the concussion. If that's one team in your league that now goes, I'm never trusting Tua again, that's a team in your league that you're never trading him to. So he feels like a one-way asset. And the reason I brought these two up is because these are the ones that we discussed this week. But start thinking about players this way. Forget about a player's profile. Forget about their skills. Forget about what they've done in the past. Start thinking about assets like this more from a public perception standpoint. And it's almost like, hey, if you just build a team and you had this invisible hype score or perception score on every player and you just drafted the ones where you go, you know what, that score is really high and I think the score is going to remain really high. You just draft assets like that. Forget about roster construction. Forget about being able to put together a cohesive lineup. You literally, in January, February, you literally just draft the assets that high that have these high hype scores. And that's it. And I've thought about that more and started to apply that across my portfolio when I'm making individual decisions on trades, when I'm making individual decisions on draft picks. So think about it. Something we'll probably expand on more as we get into the offseason. Uh, but it's a cool thing. I'd like to find out a way where we can kind of start adopting this. I think we can use like market trend data. Like we could almost use like keep trade cut data and use the trends of a player over a certain period of time to kind of figure out what this score would be for a lot of different players. So that's something to to look at going forward. Uh, hopefully this was a good exercise. Start thinking this way. It'll help you make some deals. It'll help you come up with some ideas. It'll also help you come up with some players maybe you want to sell for the same reason or buy for the same reason. Like what if X happens? What's going to happen with this player? You know, so start thinking about that. Hopefully this was good. Hopefully you enjoyed the running back data early on in the show. Uh, definitely something I'm going to expand more on in future episodes. As always, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash allgas. Dynasty and Chill, my old podcast, also has a Patreon community. Pretty booming. Uh, patreon.com slash dynasty and chill. The newsletter again, allgas.beehive.com slash subscribe. And check out all the Destination Devi radio uh, affiliations and creations in terms of what's on their podcast channel, uh, the wake up show with Ray and Jay Rich, a lot of good content, a lot more content to come. And um, with that, I will go ahead and sign off. Be chill. Like,